Support for this podcast comes from Bryn Mawr Communications. BMC produces a number of informative podcast series spanning a variety of topics in ophthalmology. Discover a new show at itube.net slash podcasts. Hello and welcome, or maybe welcome back, to another episode of The Mod Pod, where you get to hear authors of select articles from each issue of Modern Optometry read their own articles to you. This month's episode features two articles from the May-June issue's cover focus on the vision-brain connection. To start off, let's have a listen to Jacqueline Thies, a neuro-optometrist at Virginia Neuro-Optometry in Richmond, Virginia, and the Concussion Care Center of Virginia in Richmond, as she talks about identifying and managing patients with concussion. Imagine that a middle-aged patient has just walked into your office for an eye examination after experiencing a concussion from a car accident the week before. The patient reports that ever since the accident, their vision feels off and they can't tolerate their new progressive lenses. The patient is also experiencing right eye pain, nausea, and headaches after only five minutes of computer use and is photophobic. Their visual acuity is 20-20 in both eyes at distance and near. Their progressive lenses previously worked fine three weeks ago and still fit appropriately. Cover test results are orthophoric at distance and near, and eye health, visual fields, and OCT results appear normal. So what do you think could be causing this patient's visual symptoms, and what should you do? Traumatic brain injuries occur in 64 to 74 million people globally each year, and 70% to 90% are considered to be of mild severity using the Glasgow Coma Scale. Although 54% to 80% of patients with a TBI will have visual complaints, it is rare to have permanent visual field and visual acuity loss with a mild traumatic brain injury, such as a concussion. Thus, it is important to reassure the patient that the comprehensive eye health and refractive examination results are, as they should be, normal, before probing further into their subjective visual complaints. Do they have double or overlapping vision? Is there blur around the edges? Are the images clear, but moving so quickly that they appear to shimmer or smear? Sometimes patients have trouble verbalizing their symptoms, and it can be helpful to use pictures to help them describe what they see. The most common cause of visual complaints post-concussion is vestibular ocular motor dysfunction, or VOD. VOD occurs in up to 50 to 90% of adults and 76% of pediatric patients acutely and 24% chronically, chronically being more than four weeks after their concussion. Eye pain, headache, nausea with computer use, and progressive lens intolerance can all be symptoms of VOD. For primary eye care clinicians not routinely employing a comprehensive battery of binocular vision tests, a screening tool such as the vestibular ocular motor screening assessment, commonly known as VOMS, can be an excellent ancillary test to employ. VOMS is a quick, simple, validated screening assessment of symptom provocation with ocular motor testing that can be employed in the examination room without the need for additional equipment to confirm the suspicion of a diagnosis of VOD. Patients with VOD often become intolerant to the peripheral aberration of progressive lenses, which is why the lenses may suddenly provoke nausea and discomfort after a TBI, even though the progressives work just fine before the TBI. In some cases, the refraction remains stable and you will need to change the lens modality itself and temporarily switch them into single vision distance and near glasses or contact lenses until the VOD resolves. 
For other patients, the uncorrected refractive error that they were previously able to compensate for now needs to be corrected as their patient is more dependent on their visual system for balance with their vestibular system being damaged by the concussion. But do be careful though, because a little bit of correction goes a long way. Many patients have accommodative and convergence spasms and sometimes overcorrecting a patient to achieve the best visual acuity can exacerbate their headache and or their ocular motor dysfunction. One of the subtests of VOMS is near point of convergence or NPC. Up to 89% of visually symptomatic post-concussion patients will have grossly abnormal NPC, generally higher than that found in the general population, which is about 10 to 17%. Interestingly, of patients with reduced NPC post-concussion, only 8% actually have true convergence insufficiency as defined by the convergence insufficiency treatment trial. While the majority of patients are actually experiencing an accommodative disorder and or some other type of ocular motor dysfunction. It is posited that post-traumatic convergence insufficiency may be a separate entity from developmental convergence insufficiency and may rehabilitate differently. It is not uncommon for post-traumatic CI to present with a normal orthophoric or even an esophoric ocular posture on cover test and yet have a drastically reduced NPC breakpoint of 20 centimeters or further farther away with an even further reduced recovery point. Recovery point is when you pull the target backwards and ask them when they recover their double vision after it broke when you did the push-up. Post-TBI, CI, may present with fatigue on NPC, where the NPC actually gets worse with repetition, provoking severe symptoms of headache, dizziness, brain fog, and or nausea. Additionally, post-TBI patients with CI may have drastically reduced fusional convergence and divergence ranges, so they are less likely to tolerate compensatory basin prism prescriptions that are routinely prescribed for developmental CI. Although VOMS is a wonderful VOD screener, it lacks accommodative testing. Accommodative dysfunctions such as insufficiency, infacility, ill-sustained, and spasms are the most common post-concussive ocular motor dysfunction, occurring in about 43% of patients. So it is imperative to add this to the testing battery, even for patients with presbyopia. For example, if a 45-year-old patient requires a plus 250 add after a brain injury, that should be a red flag that their accommodative system is not functioning at their age-expected norms. Post-concussive accommodative dysfunction in a presbyope can be tricky to treat because an increase in add needed to alleviate the near blur will reduce the working distance, thereby exacerbating any double vision caused by post-concussive convergence dysfunction. In these cases, active vision therapy is needed to restore the patient to their presbyopic accommodative and convergence norms. If you work in a primary care setting and see a patient one week post-injury, document the VOM score and counsel the patient that in the majority of cases, about 80% symptoms are going to self-resolve within three to four weeks, so you don't necessarily need to intervene. If they absolutely cannot tolerate their progressive, switch to the modality and have them come back in three weeks. If the VOD is not resolved at the three-week follow-up, i.e. they still have an abnormal VOMS screener, refer the patient to a neurooptometrist for active rehabilitation. Active vision therapy and vestibular physical therapy have been shown to expedite post-concussion recovery faster than rest alone. When the VOD goes away, the progressive lens intolerance usually diminishes as well, such that their progressive lenses from before the brain injury magically work again, which will save your office a redo. So what about the light sensitivity? First, you need to rule out an ocular etiology. 
If the photophobia fluctuates with time of day, independent of the patient's headaches, and it's not wavelength specific, meaning every single light source is a little provoking, look to the ocular surface. Dry eye is more common in patients with a history of brain injury, as well as those with post-traumatic brain injury comorbidities, such as migraines, sleep deprivation, and sleep apnea. However, if the photophobia is constant, wavelength dependent, i.e. associated particularly with fluorescent lights, electronic devices, or UV light, and beginning within 24 hours of injury, it is more likely post-traumatic photophobia, which has a very vast differential diagnosis and complicated treatment pattern. Tinted lenses, sunglasses, may actually inhibit the natural neural adaptation to light, and thus, wearing sunglasses indoors may exacerbate photophobia and prolong recovery for the patient. I would recommend that the patient only wear sunglasses indoors if they absolutely need to for the first 72 hours or up to one week post-concussion, or if they're suffering from a debilitating migraine, but then they need to gradually wean themselves off of wearing sunglasses indoors. They can, of course, wear sunglasses outdoors because it's good for eye health. If the photophobia persists, the patient should be referred to a specialist to differentiate the etiology and weigh the risk-benefit ratio of tinted lens use and the type of tint. Some patients need a blue tint versus an actual FL41, which is helpful for migraine-related photophobia, and that might be what's required for relief. Persistent concussion symptoms that continue longer than four weeks are a multidisciplinary problem and require a multidisciplinary assessment and management plan. Unilateral eye pain with computer use could be ocular motor in origin or the result of dry eye, but it could also be referred cervicogenic pain from a corresponding whiplash injury or part of your patient's post-traumatic headache pattern. If your patient is not self-recovered three to four weeks after the initial injury, not improving with artificial tears, refer them to an appropriate specialist. Delayed referral means delayed recovery. The most common thing that we hear in our office from patients still experiencing symptoms for months or even years after a concussion is, I wish someone would have referred me to you sooner. What did you think of Dr. Thies' article? Do you feel better prepared to recognize the signs and symptoms of vestibular ocular motor dysfunction after a traumatic brain injury? Well, before we continue with our next neuro topic, let's take a quick break. Support for this podcast comes from Bryn Mawr Communications. BMC produces a number of informative podcast series spanning a variety of topics in ophthalmology. Discover a new show at itube.net slash podcasts. How comfortable are you with ordering an MRI? Have you ever even ordered one? If you've never ordered one and aren't exactly psyched at the idea, then this next article is for you. Molly Ann Clymer, an optometrist at the May Eye Care Center and Associates in Hanover, Pennsylvania, will explain when and how to use this crucial diagnostic tool. Neurovisual disorders are commonplace in my practice because I primarily serve a geriatric patient population that often presents with ocular disease and visual symptoms associated with neurologic disorders. An MRI is a critical part of diagnosing and developing a treatment plan for these patients. This article serves as a guide for when and how an optometrist should order an MRI. There are many clinical presentations that prompt the consideration of ordering an MRI. Visual field defects are a common reason to consider ordering MRI imaging. 
And if you are unable to explain the visual field defect based on the ocular presentation alone, you may need to conduct additional testing, including an MRI, in order to make a proper diagnosis. The most common clinical findings involving a unilateral visual field defect that may require an MRI include reduced visual acuity, reduced color vision, and an afferent pupillary defect. Bilateral visual field defects often require an MRI, especially when showing respect to the vertical midline. Defects may initially appear glaucomatous in nature, but if the defect does not match the optic nerve examination, you will need to consider other potential diagnoses. In the following case, I ordered an MRI with and without contrast of the brain after identifying bilateral visual field defects. A 74-year-old female presented as a new patient already using topical drops to treat her long-standing glaucoma. She presented with no ocular complaints. Her baseline visual field revealed um, bilateral defects showing uh, respect to the vertical midline in the right eye. The defect in the right eye also was very distinct in the temporal aspect of the field. I decided to order an MRI because I identified the temporal defect is not classic in early glaucoma and especially um, showing an atypical presentation with respect to the vertical midline. The MRI of her brain revealed multiple bilateral extraaxial masses, highly suspicious for sites of dural-based and extradural metastatic disease, including frontal bone involvement that resulted in substantial local mass effect. It was later determined that her pancreatic cancer metastasized to her brain. Optic nerve disc edema is another common reason to consider MRI imaging. Bilateral optic nerve disc edema prompts urgent neuroimaging to rule out space-occupying lesions through MRI images and venous sinus congestion through MRV images. Unilateral disc edema can also prompt neuroimaging based on the unique clinical presentation of the patient. A 25-year-old female presented to me with complaints of soreness and missing parts of her vision in her left eye. Findings in her right eye were normal, but her left eye showed reduced visual acuity, an afferent pupillary defect, reduced color vision, pain on eye movement, and subtle optic nerve disc edema. I ordered an MRI of the brain with and without contrast, which revealed multiple lesions exhibiting contrast enhancement suggesting active phase of demyelination. An MRI of the orbits revealed enhancement of the intraorbital segment of the left optic nerve, indicating active demyelination in the setting of multiple sclerosis. Diplopia is another reason to consider MRI imaging. Most diplopia cases in my practice are ischemic in nature, occurring secondary to poorly controlled cardiovascular disease I do not order MRI uh, imaging in these cases unless the patient's disease progresses or does not self-resolve in 90 days. 
I occasionally see diplopia that does not match the typical ischemic risk factor profile, and I do order an MRI with certain presentations. The following case example highlights a patient with diplopia for whom I ordered an MRI of the brain with and without contrast. A 39-year-old male presented with symptoms of diplopia when looking to the left. Examination showed a constant left esotropia that corrected with eight base out prism in primary gaze and required 14 base out prism in left gaze. He had a non-comitant deviation consistent with a left sixth nerve palsy. MRI images revealed multiple T2 and flare hyperintense lesions in the subcortical and periventricular white matter with a large region of T2 hyperintensity in the left frontal subcortical white matter suspicious for demyelinating disease, multiple sclerosis. I referred this patient for a neurology consultation, which indeed revealed a diagnosis of multiple sclerosis. Another patient, a 60-year-old male, presented with diplopia. After being discharged from the hospital, he reported a normal CT scan of the brain and very poor control of his uh, hypertension, and other cardiovascular diseases. His examination revealed a very large vertical skew deviation, which showed lack of superior oblique isolation on the PARPS three-step testing, and he had binocular torsion complaints. When ordering the MRI, I asked the radiologist to focus on the brainstem, which did reveal a tiny acute infarct in the central aspect of the pons. Visual field defects, optic nerve disc edema, and diplopia are all reasons why I sometimes consider order, ordering MRI images. Other reasons that aren't as common but should be considered are acute pupillary changes, central retinal artery occlusions, optic nerve disc pallor, proptosis, and ptosis. When identifying acute pupillary changes, anisocoria requires careful evaluation and a pupil-involved third nerve palsy investigation should include MRA imaging of the circle of Willis to rule out an aneurysm. MRA is the type of MRI study that provides images of arteries without the surrounding tissue. The third nerve can be compressed by an aneurysm, which would be revealed on an MRA. When identifying central retinal artery occlusions, I refer those patients to the emergency department for a stroke evaluation, and I recommend including an MRI of the brain at that time to rule out a corresponding cerebrovascular accident. When identifying optic nerve disc pallor, that is unexplained by previous ocular history, an MRI should be considered to rule out a compressive etiology to the optic nerve. Proptosis, especially when bilateral, is often a sign of Graves' disease, and unilateral cases can have many differential diagnoses. When evaluating ptosis, there are many differential diagnoses, but neuroimaging should be considered if there is a concern 
of third nerve involvement. MRI should be used to rule out compression to the eyelid and MRA to rule out compression to the third nerve. Before you take the plunge and order your first MRI, there are a few things you can do to make the process a bit easier. First, become familiar with your local radiology department protocols. A written order with an approved diagnosis code is always required. Train your staff to assist in prior authorizations and be available for peer-to-peer -peer review with insurance companies if required. Although CT scans may be more cost-effective, MRI is the superior study for many diagnoses that optometrists investigate, including tumors, soft tissue change, ischemia, and demyelination. I encourage you to view the MRI images yourself in addition to reading the radiologist interpretation. Become familiar with the three image planes, axial, coronal, and sagittal. Images are characterized by their longitudinal relaxation time, T1 versus T2. T1 is longitudinal relaxation or spin lattice, and T2 is transverse relaxation or spin-spin. T1 weighted images show the orbits and cerebral spinal fluid as dark, and T2 weighted images show the orbits and cerebral spinal fluid as bright. Additional techniques can be employed to obtain high image quality. The use of gandolinium dye enhances views and diagnosis of soft tissue changes, and fluid attenuated inversion recovery images, also known as flare, show abnormalities as bright and improves visibility of demyelination. Diffusion weighted imaging, also known as DWI, a type of MRI, improves sensitivity for detecting acute strokes. And finally, fat suppression can be applied to both T1 and T2 images to suppress normal adipose tissue signal and provide enhanced views of the optic nerve. In addition to providing an applicable diagnosis code, I recommend providing details from your examination to the radiologist. For example, if you see a bilateral right homonymous visual field defect, instruct the radiologist to carefully review the left side of the occipital lobe. One of the best things about working with patients who have neurooptometric disorders is that we can often accurately predict where we'll find the pathology. Create open communication with the radiologist and work together to improve the speed and accuracy of the diagnosis. Communicate those findings to the patient's primary care physician. As optometrists, we may be able to provide a diagnosis for the patient's visual symptoms, but it is best to approach the management and follow up as a team. We all evaluate visual field defects, optic nerve disc edema, diplopia, proptosis, afferent pupillary defects, and ptosis that do not require MRI. MRI may be one of our best tools, but it's individual case evaluations that determine the true necessity of this diagnostic route. Frequent exposure to neurovisual disorders will improve the optometrist's comfort and confidence with ordering an MRI.
So a key takeaway here is that if a visual field can't be explained based on ocular presentation alone, additional testing, including an MRI, may be necessary in order to make a proper diagnosis. Baby steps, right? Well, that's a wrap for this episode. We hope you were able to take away some helpful pearls you can use in your practice. As always, if you would like any particular topic covered, have questions, feedback, whatever, let us know. Email us at modernod at bmctoday.com. Until next time, be well. Thanks for listening. Thank you.